welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Alright, so we are in the midst of a series um, called Dead Man Walking, as I've mentioned. And uh, this is part five this morning. We are looking at... um, the lead-up to Jesus' crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection as recorded by John the Apostle. Okay, so we started off by having a look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We titled that Jesus Honoured. Tone preached that as an introduction to our series. Says then followed up with a message called Jesus Surrendered, whereby he looked at how uh, Jesus was able to lay down his life and some of the things that we can take on board if we're to lay down our lives for God. We then looked at Jesus arrested and Tone just looked at some of the events surrounding that particular moment and some of the responses of those that were there. Last Sunday night, I had a look at um, Jesus being questioned by Pilate and I asked myself three questions based on the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And so this morning, I just want to pick up on that. You see, we, for those that weren't here last Sunday night and for those who don't know the story thus far, basically after Jesus' arrest, he was taken to the high priest. Uh, well, actually, there were a couple of high priests at the time, but Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, um, and they were interrogating Jesus. And there were all these false witnesses coming and making claims about Jesus, but the trouble is none of them would actually agree on their stories. And Jesus himself, for the most part, was silent, so it was very hard to actually get any accusations to stick. Finally, what happened was Caiaphas put Jesus under oath, and he says, tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? At that point, Jesus under oath said, yes, I am. You will see me coming at the right hand. You'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Father. That was enough. That just blew all their, uh, all their, um, their minds that Jesus would claim to be God and put himself on equal keel with God. And so Caiaphas starts tearing his clothes and he says, what are we going to do with this guy? And the council agree that Jesus at that point needs to die. And so the Jews are in a predicament because they are an occupied, they're in, uh, they are under the occupation of the Romans. And they can't just willy-nilly go and kill someone. They need to have it ratified by the Roman governor, who at the time was a guy called Pontius Pilate. And so they trek on down to Pontius's place and they stand outside because they themselves are so concerned to please God and do the right thing that they wouldn't dare enter his house because that would make them unclean. So we've got these guys that are plotting murder, essentially, setting a guy up, an innocent man, but they won't break their religious traditions. And so Pilate is in this predicament where one minute he's standing outside in the, in, early in the morning talking to the Jews, then he takes Jesus inside and he talks to Jesus and he's, he's running backwards and forwards between the Jews on the outside, the, the, the council, the religious leaders, and Jesus on the inside of his, his palace. And he's trying to work out exactly what's going on and he knows the whole time it's a sham. I mean, Jesus is like no person he's not, that he's met. He's not your average man, this Jesus. And Pilate has his concerns about what's going on. He knows that the Jews are jealous of Jesus. He knows that it's a setup, And ultimately, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He feels that there's going to be a travesty of justice if he actually condemns this man to death. And he doesn't want to be responsible for that. But at the same time, the Jews are just pressing for that exact outcome. Pilate himself, like I said, he's asked Jesus the questions. And for him, he's, about, he's the governor. He is there as a peacekeeper. He is there to make sure things in the province of Judea run smoothly. And Jesus, to him, after having asked a few questions, he comes to the conclusion, this man is no rebel. 
This man is not a terrorist. He is not a threat to Roman security in the area. And so he tries to release him, as I've said. I want to pick up the story now in John chapter 19, verse 1, and I'm going to read through to verse 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's interesting. This is kind of like, I think, Pilate's last-ditch effort to try and appease the Jews. He's already offered them, perhaps we could do a trade. Perhaps I could um, condemn Jesus, and then you could ask Jesus to be released. That way I get what I want, and you get what you want, because Jesus is condemned under Roman law. You kind of get a victory of sorts, and I don't get to kill him. So, But the Jews wouldn't have a bar of that. They're just crying, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, desperate, says, what else can I do? Ah, oh, I'll have him flogged. Maybe that will appease him. So he sends Jesus off to be flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you, have no power, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This morning I want to have a look at three foundational truths that stand out to me about Jesus as I read that. The first thing I want to bring your attention to is this, that Jesus is a real man. A real man. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in verse 5 and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Here is the man. He was a genuine human being. He stood before the crowd as a man whose body had been shredded by a whip. He was bloodied, he was abused and bruised. No doubt there would have been organs in certain parts of his body showing, if you look closely enough. His pain was evident, his suffering absolutely 100% real. Many people have a perception about Jesus. If they understand that he is God, they somehow think he wasn't fully human. They somehow think he wasn't a real man. They somehow think that he was untouched 
by the sufferings and the things that were imposed upon him. But this is not true. We don't see Jesus untouched by life's hardships. And we certainly don't see him untouched at this particular point of time because he's got some sort of super armor-plated body. You can imagine the Roman soldiers, if that was the case, pulling out their whip with their leather thongs on it and their bones and nail in it and starting to flog Jesus and get stuck into his body and just only to find that the, the bits of bone are breaking off and the nails are falling out of the thong. And What's going on here? I know. They try harder and still nothing's happening. Jesus' flesh is impervious to this whip. I know what we'll do. We'll get a sword and we'll... St- Still nothing. Swords getting blunt and sparks flying everywhere. I know what we'll do. We'll get a battering ram. We'll put him against a wall and we'll smash him that way. Still nothing. Just bounces off. They break their... That's not what happened. But that's some people's perception that somehow, you know, of Jesus would be this, this super being. We know that's not what happened. Jesus' body just responded in exactly the same way as your body or my body would respond in that exactly same situation. We don't see that as Jesus' body was shredded, little bits of light began to come through because Jesus was just a God in a, like a human being suit. All that came through was blood. All that was seen on the inside was organs as his back was just shredded. Bone, it was all on display for people to see, Jesus was definitely a man. What's the big deal about that? What's the significance of that? Well, just simply this, that Jesus can identify fully with us. He knows us. He knows what we're going through. He knows the highs and the lows of being a human being. He knows the limitations. He knows the challenges. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 Talk about this. Verse 14 says, Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus has fully identified with you and me. He's sympathetic to our struggles. I don't know that we need to believe that Jesus suffered more than any other person on the face of the planet. Possibly that's the case. But just physically speaking, there are possibly people who've endured more over longer periods of time, etc. But the point is that if you suffered physically, Jesus gets it. If you've been unfairly treated and think the world is against you, Jesus gets it. I mean, I don't know about you, but you think about being in Jesus' shoes. I mean, you think what would have happened, and I don't know if it's politically correct or not, but, you know, if if Osama bin Laden had been captured and found himself amongst a group of American soldiers who were not accountable for their actions and were just allowed to do what they wanted, what what would happen at that moment? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. The Romans were there under, under duress. They didn't want to be in Judea. They probably had families elsewhere. They, 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 they probably preferred where they came from. They didn't want to be in this, this backwater. They, they, had to, you know, they were responsible for putting down Jewish riots every now and then. And, and there was tension between the Jews and the Romans. 
And for the most part, they couldn't just do what they wanted. And so when they were given the opportunity, you better believe they gave it their all. They let Jesus have it. They spat on him. They punched him. They did whatever they possibly could. When he came out, he was barely recognizable as a man. I think Jesus gets rejection. If you've been spoken ill of, abused, I think Jesus gets that too. He knows it hurts. He understands. If you've been maimed, if you've been abused, if you've been incapacitated or handicapped in any way, shape or form, Jesus gets it. If you've been hated, if you've been vilified, Jesus totally and utterly understands where you're coming from. We do not have a God who is unaware of the human condition. We do not have a God who stands alone or stands aloof and just looks down and without pity, just like playing a game of chess, just watches us do our thing and makes his move and lets us make ours. But we have a God who came and was involved as a human being, just as you and just as I are. The second thing, so Jesus was a real man. That's the first thing. We need. This is basic foundational theology for Christianity, that Jesus was a real man. Secondly, Jesus was an innocent man. Verse 6, it says, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted out, Crucify, crucify. So if Pilate had hoped to get some sort of sympathy from the Jews and satisfy their bloodlust, it didn't work. So he responds by saying, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, I don't think, you know, I think we're we're over-reading into this if we just think, you know, this is a carte blanche from Pilate just saying that everything about Jesus' life is without sin. But certainly in terms of Roman law, he found no uh, guilt in Jesus. And I think from there, we can go on and say and look more broadly at this whole issue of innocence. Jesus was an innocent man. Totally innocent. This is foundational to our faith, this understanding that Jesus was not guilty of anything. He upset a lot of people, yes, but he wasn't guilty of any crime. He made a lot of people feel very insecure and he challenged their hypocrisy with his straight shooting. He even turned over tables in the temple. But the Bible says again and again and again he was without sin. In other words, he didn't miss the mark. Sin is just missing the mark. When God's will is this and we do that, we miss the mark. We don't hit God's target for our life. But Jesus, in all that he did, all that he said, all that he thought, he continually, again and 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 again, regardless of the pressure, he hit the mark. When Jesus was in the temple, throwing over tables, he hit God's mark. God was ticked at that moment. And God through Jesus, was showing exactly what should happen at that moment in time. Tempted and tested in every way, like you are and like I am. Went through an entire life without succumbing to temptation. Was he not attracted to girls? I don't think so. I think Jesus was tested in every way like we are. But he was just a real man. And he had God's will first in his life. Put yourself in Jesus' situation under the sort of pressure that he endured when he was being beaten and abused with the knowledge that legions of angels could be at his disposal in a moment. That's temptation. 
to withhold. I love the meekness of Jesus. It's power under control. At any moment, he could have had those guys. We see in several occasions they tried to arrest Jesus. The first time they sent guards to the temple, and they just came back with their tails between their legs. No one ever spoke like this man. They couldn't do it. Such was the presence of Jesus. Even when they spoke about Jesus being arrested, it says, Jesus said, I am he. Who is it? I am he. They fell back. At any moment, Jesus could have been in absolute control in that situation, but he, he yielded himself to the Father's will. And he chose to take the, the low road. He allowed himself to be beaten and abused and spat on and, and, and all manner of stuff to take place, when at any moment he could have shook it off. He's been tempted and tested. Hebrews 4.15, I read it before. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. So Jesus doesn't just identify with us as people, but he represents us as a perfect and a sinless man. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, says, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, and I would encourage you to go and read some of these scriptures later at your own leisure, Romans chapter 5. Just as through the disobedience of Adam, the many, in fact all people everywhere of all time, were made sinners, and so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Adam, at one point, stood representing all of humanity. And what did he do? He sold out to the devil. He sold us all up the creek without a paddle. Every one of us came under the bondage of sin. And every one of us, as a result of that, became enemies of God. Jesus comes later on, also as a representative of humanity. And he lives a totally perfect life, always in control of his thoughts, his actions, and his words. And through that sinless life, he overcomes the devil, and he reconciles us back to God. So Jesus identifies with us, and Jesus represents us. And finally, Jesus is not just a real man. He's not just an innocent man. But most crucially of all, he is a God-man, or the God-man. The Jews insisted, we have a law, in verse 7, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine being Pilate at that point. I mean, talk about a bad day. Talk about things going from bad to worse. Here he is, he's got his doubts about this whole deal that's going down, and suddenly, the person that he's supposed to be sitting in judgment on is the Son of God. Now, You've got to understand that Pilate had a different worldview than the Jews. The Jews were monotheistic. They believed in God. Now, Pilate didn't necessarily believe that. He was probably a bit more of a relativist. He believed in all sorts of gods and all sorts of things, more after the Roman, which came from the Greek sort of tradition. But even so, touching a son of God. I mean, imagine, you know, just for sake of a name, Hercules, son of God, a son of a God. This sort of superhero of ancient, you know, you know um, of old. This is the sort of thing that he would have had in his thinking. And he's thinking, what am I in for here? He didn't understand fully the ramification, but even his limited understanding of gods 
and the sons of gods. He was still freaking. He was still panicking at the whole idea that possibly I'm, my bad day could get a whole lot worse yet. And so he is fighting for a way. He's fighting for his life at this point, trying to let Jesus go. And the Jews are resisting him at every turn. You know, some people say that Jesus was just a good man. Some people believe that he was a moral teacher. And some people go on to claim that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. They claim that Christianity, all that you and I believe, and all that our, the last 2,000 years of history of much of the world has been built on is just a big misunderstanding. Jesus was a good man. He was, a, he was possibly a prophet. He was definitely a moral teacher. But he was not God. That's one of the thoughts that is out there, and that's one of the thoughts that can infiltrate into our thinking. But I want you to understand this, that any person who says that needs to recognize that it flies in the face of the Bible, which is actually history. It's a historical account. In fact, the the Gospels are four separate historical accounts of the, the life of Jesus. It flies in the face of secular history about Jesus and church history from then on. And it also flies in the face of common sense. The only thing that could make stick against Jesus in this trial was the fact that he claimed to be God. That's what he was killed for. Let's not forget that, people. Jesus claimed to be God. That is why he had to die. If he was just a good guy, he didn't have to die. If he was just a moral teacher, he didn't have to die. If Even if he was a prophet, he didn't have to die. As a miracle worker, he didn't have to die. The thing that killed him was his claim to be the Son of God. The Jews got it. Pilate got it eventually. Now, when most people claim to be the Son of God, it's quite easy to dismiss. Easy to dismiss. The person is either delusional, delusional they, they think things of themselves that are not true, or they're actually attempting to deceive us. The trouble is, as Pilate is standing in front of Jesus, he recognises this guy is no ordinary person. He doesn't exhibit the characteristics of a person who is delusional. And he's a Pretty much an open book in terms of all that has been taken place in his ministry been done out in the open. If you're talking about the arts, the, 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 those that are deceptive, surely it's the Pharisees and those people that went and arrested him in the middle of the night. And so Jesus' claims are worth a second look. I think, sadly, the agendas, the prejudices, the preconceived ideas, all of these things that were built up in the lives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious teachers and council of the day prevented them from actually weighing up the evidence. Is Jesus the Son of God? Likewise, many today are unaware of the evidence or refuse to put the time and effort into actually thinking about the evidence and coming to a conclusion. They want to hold on to their agendas. They want to hang on to their preconceived ideas. They want to maintain their lifestyle. And they recognize that if things might need to change if I acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. It's far better, though, to have this sort of attitude that basically says, I will go... Wherever the evidence leads, irrespective of whether it messes with my preconceived ideas and my comfort. We need to go where the evidence leads, people. And we need to be able to encourage other people to go where the evidence leads. That's what the majority of the council didn't do. They were just hell-bent on killing Jesus. But there were a couple of guys. You may have heard of them. Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea. These were part of the council that Jesus had to stand behind. The council that condemned Jesus, these guys were part of that council, but they didn't go along with it. They didn't give a yes vote to the execution of Jesus. 
because they weighed up the evidence and they'd come to the conclusion that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be and they went on to be followers of Jesus. So what's the evidence? I'm just going to quickly run through a few things. And these are things that you know, I would encourage you to, to get to know more about, to dig into for yourselves, that you can have an answer when people ask you about who is Jesus and why do you believe in him and why are you living your life for him? So just a few things quickly that I think support just maybe the claims that Jesus actually was God. Firstly, prophecy. There are many, 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 many Old Testament prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus even came onto the planet. Most of them out of his control totally and utterly. Some people say, oh, well, what about Jesus when he got the donkey? You know, he was just trying to fulfill his old prophecy. Well, that's fine. You could say that if you want to. That's one example. But what about where he was born? What about the... <laughs> there's, there's so much that is out of Jesus' control that he fulfilled to the letter. What about his miraculous power? Again, I would think if I'm looking for someone who's claiming to be the, the son of God, I would be looking for a measure of power in their life, not just big boasts and claims and even persuasive words and eloquence or intellect. I'd be looking for some power. I'd be looking for someone who actually could heal the sick, who actually could raise the dead. Someone who actually did have some authority. We see that Jesus had authority over evil spirits. He cast them out of people with a word. People that, that, that society had given up on. We read of a, a demoniac who, uh, you know, he said he'd been chained and he lived amongst the tombs and he kept breaking the chains. He was causing havoc. And they could do nothing with him. And, and, and suddenly he's kneeling before Jesus because Jesus just said, come out. That's authority. It's power. We see that Jesus, in the midst of a storm, just speaks. And the weather changes. That's authority. I would expect something of that from one who claims to be the Son of God. Power over death calls Lazarus forth out of, not just a guy who's fresh, who's possibly just in a coma, but a guy who started to putrefy, a guy whose body who started to break down. And Jesus calls him forth, and life goes back into his body. His disciples got a glimpse one day in Matthew chapter 17 we read about an event called the transfiguration where suddenly Jesus was shining as bright as lightning an insight into a person who was no ordinary man. His own predictions. Jesus didn't, wasn't just prophesied about. He made many prophecies himself. He spoke about his own resurrection, his, sorry, his own, the manner of his death and his resurrection ad nauseum to his disciples, and they didn't get it. I mean, I'm re- I was reading um, Mark chapter 9, I think it was, and it says, Jesus told them, I must die, and on the third day I'll rise again. And it says, and the disciples didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't veiled language. He was just, but you can understand why they didn't get it, really. But Jesus wasn't hiding stuff, he spoke about the temple. Of Jer- at Jerusalem, the, the thing that had taken many decades to build. And he said, this thing is going to be gone soon. And they couldn't believe it because it was so massive and so imposing. And yet in 70 AD, we see that Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was pulled down brick from brick. Jesus prophesied that. He prophesied his own resurrection. And he prophesied his return. And again, he didn't just speak those things. That's amazing. But the resurrection actually happened. Let's not forget that. 
There are so many things about the life of Jesus that you can study, that you can pour over the Bible, you can look at the external evidence, and others those things outside of the Bible, be it secular history, be it the, the march of the church throughout history, and you, and you have to draw the conclusion that Jesus was no ordinary man, and if you, if, if you can put your prejudice aside, if you can put your unbelief aside, if you can just come totally unbiased and say, really, here's the claim. Here's the evidence. Is it more likely that Jesus was the Son of God or more unlikely that he was the Son of God? I think any person that is sane, any person that is reasonable, any person that is integrous would have to say, it seems far more likely that Jesus was the Son of God than he wasn't. The old saying is, it walks like a duck, it sounds like a duck. If it looks like a duck, the chances are it's a duck. If it walks like the Son of God, it sounds like the Son of God. It does the things that the Son of God would do, surely. (laughs) As a real man, Jesus identifies with our weaknesses. And as as an innocent man, he represents us before the Father. And as the God-man, his sacrifice is priceless and will cover the debt of any person who will turn to him for help. The scene finishes as Pilate hands Jesus over for crucifixion. And the tragedy here is in their desperation to get rid of Jesus, they rejected the very God that they claimed to be serving. And worse than that, we read in other Gospels where it says, and may his blood be on our heads and the heads of our children. If you look at the Jewish nation throughout history, you don't need to be too much of a scholar to recognise that it has come back to haunt them again and again, and again. But what about us this morning? Are we dismissive of Jesus' claims? If we are, why? And can we risk being dismissive of God's only method of salvation? Think about it. As believers, are we living in the fullness of who Jesus is and what he's done? What I mean by that is, do we waste time wallowing in self-pity? What does God know? What does God care? He can't understand what I'm going through. It's a waste of time because Jesus can understand. He has understood and surely that should encourage us. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. If we're going through something still, it's because there's more in us yet that God wants to draw out. He knows how strong we are. He knows what we can handle. It's like a rubber band. You know, you feel it's going to break here, but... In this case of your life, God says, no, you've got further yet because he's bringing good things out of our life. Are you feeling like a second-rate Christian? Are you unable to come confidently and boldly into God's throne room? Do you feel that God is looking at you sideways? Do you feel like he's got suspicions and doubts about you? It's because we don't understand that Jesus was an innocent man. And he stood on our behalf. And when God sees us today, he no longer sees us and all the mess-ups that we've had in life, but he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. I think theology needs to be practical. And if we can just understand these, these truths, small but massive truths, I've just summarized them very, very quickly, but if we can just allow those things to permeate their way into our lives, surely we can live more confidently. Surely we can live more attractively. Surely we can live more purposefully. Surely we can live more confidently, etc., etc., etc. Don't let a low view of Jesus rob you of God's best. 
for your life. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.